Well, we're finally getting into the text of Romans. After two introduction sermons, we are now going to start working our way through the letter. And as we start, we're going to go through some smaller chunks because we have to lay a good foundation. And then we'll get through larger portions of the text as we go through this series. So if you're concerned that every sermon will be four verses long and that will be in Romans for the next 50 years, rest assured that's not the case. But there are some vital aspects of this letter that we have to get straight as we start, and and that involves going piece by piece, at least for a couple of weeks. So we begin with Romans 1, 1 through 4, asking the question, What is the gospel of God? What is the gospel? This is a pretty important question. So if you had to write a description of the gospel in one sentence, or like in one tweet, or one Facebook post, what would you say? What would your concise, brief articulation of the gospel emphasize? What would you leave out? What would you make the core of the gospel? So, so you have one sentence. What is the heart of the gospel? Some people might answer that at its very core, the gospel is a message that God wants to bless people with money, health, and happiness. We might refer to this as the prosperity gospel. Others might believe that the gospel is fundamentally about self-discovery. Others still might suggest that the gospel is primarily a concern for the poor. He wants to liberate the oppressed. Others still might suggest that the most fundamental aspect of the gospel is escape from hell and the promise of eternal life in heaven, if only you just believe. Although each of these definitions of the gospel may have some biblical grounding, I think they all have one major problem, and that is they make the heart or the center of the gospel something about us, our wealth, health, and happiness, our liberation, our escape from hell. Say that these are all human-centered explanations of the gospel, and probably they're all in response to other human-centered explanations of the gospel. So if God wants you to have money, health, and happiness, that's probably the opposite of a kind of gospel that says the gospel is a call to resign all wealth and prosperity in this life, to become a monk or to become an ascetic. If the declaration of the gospel is that God just wants you to be free, it's probably the opposite of gospel summaries that say God wants Christians to take over the world and establish a Christian government and put everyone else under their thumb. If the gospel is just about salvation from hell, if only you just say a prayer of belief, that's probably a response to a different man-centered gospel that says you need to earn your escape from hell. Do you see how these gospels, when they're centered on humanity, have a lot to do with us, and they lead to various distortions of doctrine, and they produce different kinds of contorted Christianity. So I think the underlying problem is that they put humans at the center 
and relegate Jesus to the margins. That's different than what Paul does. Paul immediately gives us a frame of reference for how we should articulate the gospel by describing it in this way at the end of verse 1. He calls it the gospel of God. It's not the gospel of wealth, the gospel of freedom, the gospel of you. It's the gospel of God. So that begins to shape how we ought to think about the gospel. For Paul, the gospel will be centered on Jesus Christ. In verses 2 and 3 and 4, he gives a very concise articulation about, of the gospel, and it's all about Jesus. The gospel is centered on Jesus. All right, so all we're going to do this morning is to investigate this concise articulation of the gospel. For some of us, that means that we're going to have to shift what we call the center of the gospel from something else, maybe something on that list, whatever it is, to Jesus. For others of us, we might be considering the gospel for the first time, and I want you to know that the gospel is fundamentally an announcement about Jesus. For all of us, we should dive deeper into the gospel and align our thinking with that of Paul's here in Romans. So we're going to do this first by considering the terminology associated with the gospel, and then we'll return to this brief articulation of the gospel in Romans 1, and then finally we'll consider what implications there are for our lives. But first, let's consider the gospel terminology that undergirds Paul's summary of the gospel. The gospel is the announcement that the resurrected Jesus is the messianic king. That's his summary statement. So let's consider the terminology that supports it. First, let's think about the term gospel. The Greek term that's usually translated as gospel is also sometimes translated as good news. So whenever you're reading in the Bible, if you come across the phrase good news, That's the same Greek word as gospel. It's the same thing. Translations do it in different ways. And often, one translation will sometimes render the Greek word gospel at other times good news. But it's talking about the same thing. Believe it or not, though, uh, this term is not unique to the Bible. The word gospel was common in Paul's day and Jesus' day, going all the way back to the days of the Old Testament. So if we, want to, if we want to understand what gospel means, we need to look at both what the Bible says about gospel and how the term is used in the world of the Bible. So let's start with the world of the Bible. In ancient literature outside of the Bible, this term gospel is usually associated with a political or military report. So, for example, a messenger would convey the gospel declaring victory after a battle. Their side had won. But the term was also used to announce the coronation of a king or the birth of a royal heir. So, so if, a, if Caesar became king, you know, and he was enthroned, a gospel proclamation would go out. Caesar is now on the throne. That's how the term gospel was used. Very Famously, the Roman emperor Caesar identified himself as a lord 
and he declared a gospel of peace and security under his reign. So it's in this context that the biblical authors are using the term gospel. They're using it in a context where other rulers are talking about their own rule and reign in almost religious language. Now, I want to suggest that even in the United States of America, our political leaders co-opt religious language to describe their rules in their reigns, in their policies. So if you remember back to the days of President Obama, his campaign slogan was all about hope. He offered hope to people. Um, More recently, uh, I was watching a presidential candidate on the television while I was at the gym. I don't know what he was saying because it was silent, but there was this placard on the podium that said, save America. It's this religious type language that gets connected to rulers That was the same in Paul's day, but the the title that they gave those proclamations was gospel. That, That was the term for those announcements of political or military victory or the coronation, enthronement, birth of a king. The Old Testament uses the term in very similar ways. So if you, if you look in the Old Testament, it will use this term to describe military success or political victories or to announce the end of exile as security and hope and peace has finally arrived. Talks about the establishment of the kingdom of Israel. The same is true for its use in the New Testament. The New Testament authors and Jesus maintain this kingly and kingdom association with the term gospel. So for example, in the first appearances of the term in the New Testament, Jesus connects gospel to to the ideas of king and kingdom. So in Matthew 4.23 and 9.35, Jesus began to go all over Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news or gospel of the kingdom. Okay, let me go to the next gospel in our canonical order. Mark 1.14, this is Jesus. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has drawn near. Repent and believe the good news or gospel. One more in Luke 4.43. Luke says, it is necessary, quoting Jesus, it is necessary for me to proclaim the good news about the kingdom of God. So do you get the association between gospel or good news and kingdom in every instance here that Jesus is using? The term gospel or good news has to do with the idea of king and kingdom. Now, I wondered if this was just an anomaly, if if these would just be proof texts. So I looked up all 161 instances of this word group relating to gospel in the Old and New Testament. And in nearly every occurrence, the term is associated with the announcement of a king or kingdom or military or political victory and announcements about the Messiah and the end of exile. So when Paul chooses to use this term gospel, it has all of these connotations with it. So as you start to think about how you would articulate the gospel or what you would say in a concise treatment of the gospel, we ought to include these kingly and kingdom ideas because it's inherent in the word. So Jesus connects the term gospel to the kingdom. The biblical authors are doing the exact same. 
So when we talk about the gospel, we need to emphasize this, um, this meaning, the kingly kingdom aspects. Unfortunately, I want to suggest that this emphasis has been neglected or overlooked completely in modern conceptions of the gospel. So we need to retrain our thinking to associate gospel with the kingdom of God. That's the way Jesus talked about it. That's the way Paul is going to talk about it. All right, so we have our gospel terminology, first of which is the actual term gospel. But there's a second significant term, really a significant title, and that is Christ. This title shows up in verses 1 and 3. So we've clarified gospel, now let's clarify Christ. Because we know that the term gospel has to do with kingly or kingdom ideas, we can almost assume that the titles given to Jesus do the same. But it will become clear as we look at that title. Christ is the Greek word for the Messiah, which is a Hebrew term. Now, in English translations, it's not always consistent in rendering Messiah or Christ or anointed one. So in the call to worship, when we read Psalm 2, we read his anointed one. Um, But here, it uses the same term as Christ. In other places in the Bible, it would translate it Messiah. They're all referring to the same thing. Uh, It gets a little bit complicated because titles do take on name-like qualities. This is true even for political titles in our day. So, for example, the President of the United States is sometimes called Mr. President. But is President Mr. President's last name? No, it's not. In the same way that Christ is not Jesus' last name. It, It gets a little bit complicated, but the main point is this. Christ is fundamentally a title, and it's the same word that is sometimes translated Messiah, and both Christ and Messiah mean anointed one, okay? So that's the main thing. So when you see Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus, the word order doesn't really matter. We get both word orderings in Romans 1, 1, and then in 1, 3. The main point is that this is fundamentally a title for Jesus, So we need to think about what the title is communicating. In the Old Testament, prophets and priests and kings were anointed with oil to signify that God had appointed them for their particular calling. He had had appointed them to that office of priest or king or whatever it is. So any person who had been anointed with oil and set apart for one of these offices could be called the Messiah or the anointed one in that instance. Um, And God used these anointed people to instruct and lead Israel. Tragically, however, Israel did not always respond favorably to the leadership of God's anointed ones. In fact, they rebelled against them. And then even the anointed ones rebelled against God. And God eventually responded by sending them back into exile. He, He destroyed their kingdom. Over time, God allowed Israel to return from exile, and he started anointing priests and prophets once again. But there was one big absent office of anointing. There wasn't an anointed king who stepped up to the plate. In fact, there were only promises that someday in the future there would be an anointed king. And this king would rule forever. And over time, 
the title Christ or Messiah or Anointed One became the official designation for this promised future ruler. By the time that Paul uses this term, the title Christ or Messiah designated this one promised individual. We know that Paul is drawing on this because in verse 2, he asserts that the gospel of God was promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And I want to suggest that it's primarily this promise of the coming Messiah, the coming Christ, the coming anointed one that is in view. Paul is claiming that Jesus is the Messiah. He is this promised Christ. Now, as a brief point of application, we need to affirm our need to read the Old Testament as Christian scripture because that's where the gospel starts. We can't get rid of the Old Testament because it doesn't feel relevant to us. We have to read it as Christian scripture because the gospel is rooted there. So read and understand the Old Testament as Christian scripture. If you lose the Old Testament, I want to suggest you eventually lose the gospel. So here's a good challenge for you. And for those of you who have home group today, maybe this would be a good thing to try out there. Try to brainstorm and figure out how you would communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ using only the Old Testament. Maybe create a scenario where you have a, a Jewish coworker who affirms the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, what they call the Hebrew Bible, Israel Scripture, as God's word. How would you share the gospel with them from the Old Testament, particularly identifying the promises about the Messiah? That would be a good task for all of us. Paul will do that throughout Romans. We'll, we'll attend to some of that in the weeks ahead. But for Christ to be called, for Jesus to be called the Christ or the Messiah was to claim that he fulfilled the promises in Israel's scripture. He is God's anointed one. Now this was such a controversial claim that it ended up getting Jesus crucified. This, this is why um, the Jewish people called out to Pilate, we have no king but Caesar. Because they knew for Jesus to be the Christ was for him to be their king. And they denied that. Um, it was so controversial and so contentious that many of Jesus' earliest followers were persecuted for making the claim that Jesus is the Messiah. Many of them even died for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, of Jesus as the Messiah. So it's not a claim about Jesus' last name. Instead, it's a claim that Jesus is this long-awaited, anointed king. So, so whenever you read Christ in, the, in Romans, I want you to plug in king or messianic king or something like that. Now, Jesus also takes on the uh, messianic anointed priestly roles as well. So if there's a priestly context, you could read our messianic priest, Jesus. But most of the time, you should be reading King Jesus or Jesus the king. That's what should be going through our minds. All right, there's one other significant designation that we need to explore before we return to Paul's summary of the gospel, and that is the term son of God. Now here, when 
Paul refers to Jesus as God's son in verse 3 and again in verse 4. He's probably not making a Trinitarian claim. Okay, so sometimes when we talk about Jesus as the only begotten of the Father, we're making a Trinitarian claim. That's likely not what Paul is doing here because this was a title that was used in the ancient world. It was popular in Greco-Roman society. Kings and rulers would identify themselves as the son of the God or a son of the gods. And, and what they meant by that is that they had a special relationship with their divine entities, and those divine entities authorized them to represent the gods and to rule on their behalf. So, so it was like if the king spoke, they had the authority of the gods. They represented the gods to their citizens. So for Paul to claim that Jesus was the son of God was to disenfranchise these other rulers and other gods. Paul is saying there's only one God and his son, his divine representative, is Jesus. This is significant because at this very time, the Roman rulers were claiming to be the sons of the gods. So Paul is setting the story straight. Jesus is the only one who has divine authority in his rule and reign, no one else. Therefore, all other rulers and authorities are subject to divine authority. That's why you obey your human rulers, unless they contradict God, unless they contradict the commands of Christ, because Christ is the divine ruler. But this term isn't just like part of their historical cultural background. It also has deep Old Testament roots. So would you believe it? Jesus is not the first person in the Bible to be called the Son of God. That might strike you as a little bit strange, but Jesus is not the first person to be designated as the Son of God. The first place that God's Son is described in the Old Testament is actually in Exodus. There, God refers to the nation of Israel as his firstborn son. So Moses was to announce to Pharaoh Israel is my firstborn son. In other words, Israel is God's people. They represent his rule and reign on the earth. The kingdom of Israel will be where God's divine authority is represented. But then, as Israel's history develops a little bit more, the next place this son of a God or son of God language appears is in reference to King David in 2 Samuel, and then paralleled in Psalm 89. There, the prophet Nathan, now remember, um, the, the promise of the Messiah is testified to in the prophets in the ancient scripture. So this prophet Nathan says to my servant David, I will be his father and he will be my son. God says of David and his offspring, the Davidic line, I will also make him my firstborn, the greatest of the kings of earth. So, so the son of God language for someone who knows the Hebrew Bible has a lot of importance and background not having to do with a Trinitarian claim. So to summarize, in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel and the Davidic kings were referred to as the son of God. And then additionally, there was this promise given in Psalm 2 that there would be a future king who would be installed as the son of God, who would reign not over just Israel, but over the whole world. 
So in Psalm 2, God said, I have installed, and this is like said in the past tense, but it's actually a future thing. I have installed my king on Zion. I will declare the Lord's decree, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance and the earth your possession. This is a prophetic promise about the coming king. And I want to propose that it's ultimately fulfilled in Jesus, who became the king, the son of God, not only over Israel, but of all the world. So when Paul now addresses Jesus as the Son of God, all of this background is in mind. But what are the differences between Jesus as God's Son and these other entities as God's Son? There are two major differences. First, these Old Testament figures that operated as God's Son always failed to maintain covenant faithfulness with God. But Jesus obeyed him and lived in faithfulness perfectly. Every other son failed. Jesus did not. Second, and maybe even more obvious, is that every other person or entity designated as the Son of God died, and they remained dead. Jesus died, but he didn't remain dead. That's what Paul emphasizes in verse 4. Jesus, this powerful Son of God, was raised from the dead. So he'll be the Son of God forever. He'll represent God. He'll rule on God's behalf for all time. Okay, so the, these are three significant terms if we're, that we've got to have in our minds if we're going to understand Paul's conception of the gospel. So what should you do with this information? Um, what should you do with this terminology? I, wa- I want to make three suggestions. First, when it comes to the term gospel, in the title Christ, in the designation Son of God, you need to keep in mind the kingly associations with these terms because they'll shape the way you think about Jesus. You ought to think about Jesus as the divine representative of God's rule and reign for all time. More than that, you need to think about the gospel as the announcement of Jesus' kingship. The gospel is the announcement that Jesus is the resurrected messianic king. So that's second, I suppose, is frame your explanation of the gospel in light of these terms. Shape your articulation of the gospel to communicate Jesus at the center. Jesus is a resurrected messianic king must not be a footnote in your explanation of the gospel. It's got to be the main text. But then finally, third, I want to encourage you to keep growing in your understanding of the gospel, especially if it would seem strange to you to make the gospel all about Jesus as the messianic king, as the resurrected king. If, if that seems strange, or, or if you would otherwise put that in the margins, I'd encourage you to keep thinking about this and keep growing in your understanding of the gospel. And I'd recommend three resources. First, I'd point you to a Bible class that I recently taught here called What is the Gospel? The the audio is online. I think it's four lectures. It's like three hours. Otherwise, we have a booklet that goes along with it. That would be the most simple way to start. Think about the gospel based on what we taught in that Bible class. But if you want to go deeper, 
There's a book by a guy named Scott McKnight called The King Jesus Gospel. I have two copies that I put out in our little resource cove in the entryway. If you would like that, it's first come, first serve. You can pick that up and take it with you and study. And then if you want to go even further, there's a book by a fellow named Matthew Bates called Gospel Allegiance. These, these resources will help you keep thinking about Jesus as the center of the gospel message. Okay. Now that we've clarified these terms, let's focus on the gospel announcement. What, what does Paul actually say here in verses 2 through 4? Paul emphasizes this. The gospel of God is the announcement that the resurrected Jesus is a messianic king. And this is the way he proves it. By human descent, by Jesus' human lineage, he's the Davidic king. He's the fulfillment of the promise that a king would come from David's line. All right? But then by the Holy Spirit, he's resurrected. He's raised to rule in power as the Son of God. So we can just read this in verses 3 and 4. The gospel of God concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was a descendant of David according to the flesh and was appointed to be the powerful son of God according to the spirit of holiness or Holy Spirit by the resurrection from the dead. This is his gospel summary. This is the gospel announcement. Jesus is the one we've been looking for. He is the Messiah because he meets the requirements to be descended from David. More than that, he's better than any other descendant of David because he's been raised from the dead to become the powerful son of God. There's a brief question mark. You might be wondering, well, wasn't Jesus always the son of God? Well, yes, but now he's the son of God in power. It's like he's always been the heir to the throne, but now he's stepped up to the throne. He's been coronated. He's been enthroned. He's reigning in power now. And that coronation, that enthronement, comes through his resurrection and ascension. That's what Paul draws attention to. The resurrection, then, is really, really important because it proves that Jesus is the ruling and reigning Son of God. So when we get to Easter Sunday here, Resurrection Sunday soon, we ought to be thinking about what it means. Well, what it means is that Jesus rules and reigns now. That gospel announcement that Paul gave is true. When, when you tell people that you attend Resurrection Church or that you're a member at Resurrection Church and they ask you what that's all about, it's all about recognizing that Jesus is the Messiah and living our lives out under his kingship, under his rule and reign. This is what's at the heart of the gospel, the risen, reigning Messiah, Jesus. This is a really brief articulation of the gospel, isn't it? Now, um, it's not my articulation of the gospel. So you might be thinking, you're leaving out something else really important. I want to say Paul, Paul is leaving out some important things as well, and he'll get to them later on in the letter. But at the beating heart of the gospel is that Jesus, the claim or the announcement that Jesus is the resurrected messianic king. So what do we do with this? What are the gospel implications? What are the implications of this message? 
I want to suggest that the implications are so far ranging that we could not possibly examine them all today. But some of you might be thinking, if we make the gospel primarily about Jesus instead of, and then fill in the blank with whatever you would naturally fill it in with, okay? So some of you might, might be inclined to say, the gospel about, is primarily about wealth and prosperity. Or some of you might say the gospel is primarily about concern for the poor. Or some of you might say the gospel is primarily about escape from hell and entrance into heaven at death. I, I want to suggest that all of those um, framings of the gospel, by putting any of those things in the center, you're actually limiting the implications of the gospel to just that thing. But by putting Jesus at the center, now the implications extend as far as the reign and rule of Jesus does. The implications extend as far as the concerns of Jesus extend, and they are far-reaching. More than that, they involve every aspect of our lives, not just one part of it, not just our wealth, not just our freedom, and not just our um, destination at death. The gospel, when it's centered on Jesus, is for all of life. So let me give you four all-of-life implications for the gospel. Number one, if it is true that Jesus is a resurrected messianic king, then all people owe him their allegiance above everything else. If it is true that Jesus is the promised Messiah, then all of us ought to respond by recognizing that and giving him our allegiance. More than that, we ought to proclaim that Jesus is the Messiah for all people. Because remember, he's the raised king, not just for Israel, but for the whole earth, for all the nations. So we ought to proclaim Jesus to all of the nations and call every person to give their allegiance to King Jesus. So how do we give our allegiance to King Jesus? We do so by turning to him in repentance, giving ourselves over to him in faith, and pledging our allegiance to him in baptism. We we make our whole lives focused on Jesus and living out our lives under his rule and reign. Okay, so we, we give ourselves over to him. If Jesus is the king, then there will come a day when all people will have to take a side. Are you on King Jesus' side? Or have you identified something or someone else that you prefer to serve instead? Is there something else that you want to live under instead of Jesus? Is there a different dominion, a different realm that you want to be part of other than Jesus's? Which side are you on? The fact is we all have to make that determination in this life. If you have not pledged allegiance to King Jesus, if, if you have not identified Jesus as your king, and turn toward him, and giving your life over to his rule and reign, I would encourage you, talk to someone here today. Because this is a decision that can't wait till tomorrow. Because Jesus isn't king for tomorrow, he's king now and for all time. So one implication of the gospel is that we ought to express our allegiance to Jesus through repentance, faith, and baptism. Second, If it is true that Jesus is the resurrected messianic king, 
His authority extends to every aspect of our lives. All of life ought to be lived out under the rule and reign of Jesus. All of our life ought to be transformed to be lived out according to his kingdom values and in compliance with his kingly commands. No part of our lives are off limits. Not one moment of your day belongs to you. Every moment belongs to Jesus. Not one part of you belongs to you or anything else. It all belongs to Jesus. So all of us ought to investigate the realms of our life. Do you like how that metaphor works? Jesus' realm transcends all other realms. What realms of your life are you remaining hostile to Jesus in? What realms of your life have you put up the barricades of defense against King Jesus? Identify those realms of your life and surrender them to him. If it's true that Jesus is a messianic king, then we owe him our allegiance in every aspect of life. His authority didn't stop when he ascended to heaven. It continues now. And his authority over you won't start at your death and enter into heaven. His authority is here now. So we owe him obedience and respect in all of life. Third, we ought to renounce hope in all other rulers. and We ought to give up all other allegiances. If it's true that Jesus is our messianic kings, then, then we ought to look for the promises for a full and lasting life in no one but Jesus. Very often, you and I are tempted to grasp onto messages from various entities that promise us hope and salvation and meaning, and none of them can make good on it. So they always leave us empty and hopeless and lonely. So we ought to renounce our hope in all other rulers and entities and things and place them in Jesus alone. This is exactly what Paul was calling his first readers to do because their ruler said things like this. He said that he would promise them peace and security even as he identified himself as Lord. Paul identifies Jesus as Lord and says that only Jesus can offer us peace and hope and security. I, I think that we ought to start talking about this way in our conversations with our coworkers and neighbors and with each other especially because on every television station, there's some politician offering what Jesus alone can offer. When you are up for a job promotion, you ought to lean into Jesus is the only one who can provide you meaning in life and security and ultimate prosperity before him. Your job can't do that. What, whatever it is that you look to, renounce that, your claim on that to give you what you want, and accept Jesus' claim on your life. Finally, if it's true that Jesus is the messianic king, then we ought to relativize all other identities in light of our kingdom belonging, in light of our kingdom citizenship. When we pledge our allegiance to Jesus as king, we become part of his kingdom, and that becomes our fundamental identity. Now, this is a little bit nuanced, but I want to point out that I said we ought to relativize 
all other identities. Becoming a kingdom citizen doesn't erase all of our other identities. It doesn't get rid of your skin color or your gender or the city that you live in or the job that you have or the family that you were placed in. It doesn't get rid of any of those realities. We shouldn't become blind to them, but we ought to relativize them. Our deepest identity now is as a citizen in Jesus' kingdom, is a follower of King Jesus. And that has broad and vast implications that we cannot explore here, but you would do well to explore in conversations this week. How does the fact that you belong to Jesus' kingdom change the way that you think about your belonging in this church when you look around and there are people who are so different than you? How does your belonging to Jesus' kingdom change the way that you talk about race and ethnicity? How does kingdom belonging change the way that you talk about wealth and social status? I, I want to say it has implications that relativizes all of these things and produces a unified people of God. And if you think back to the divisions in the Church of Rome, you can see why it is so important for Paul to start here. The greatest metric for belonging and for our identity is our participation in the kingdom of God and nothing else. So in this sermon, I've tried to draw our attention and make the case that the beating heart of the gospel message is the announcement that Jesus is the resurrected messianic king. I want our thinking to be shaped as we move from here with the words of Psalm 212 because they instruct us how we ought to respond. Serve the Lord with reverential awe and rejoice with trembling. Pay homage to the Son, or for you who love the ESV, kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in your rebellion. For his anger may ignite at any moment. But for all kingdom citizens, for all who pledge their allegiance to Jesus, all who take refuge in him are happy. Father, thank you for King Jesus. Thank you for fulfilling the promises that people for generation after generation after generation waited to see. Thank you for including us in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Would you allow all of life to be shaped by our allegiance to him and him alone. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.